Hello, this is Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. And this is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy. And more importantly, how we can win. I'm joined today by Leopoldo Lopez, a prominent Venezuelan opposition leader and freedom activist who in 2000 was elected to serve as mayor of Venezuela's capital, Caracas. In 2004, he was re-elected, and then in 2008, he was disqualified from running for office right before the next election. Then, he founded a political freedom movement called Voluntad Popular, and as a result of his fight for freedom, he ultimately survived multiple assassination attempts. In 2014, he called for protest against the dictatorship of Maduro, who almost immediately issued a warrant for his arrest. Then, in February 2014, Leopoldo famously turned himself in voluntarily. This resulted in him spending years in solitary confinement in military prison before ultimately being released to house arrest. In 2019, pro-freedom soldiers released him from captivity, and he was able to make it to the Spanish embassy, where he spent a year and a half, before escaping to Spain, where he currently lives and serves as a fellow at the Wilson Center. Leo. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Uriel. Well, I would like to start by saying that being released to house arrest is an oxymoron. They made my house a prison, not only for me, but for my children, for my wife. And it was a difficult moment because it was a prison taken directly to my family. So thanks for having me here. I'm very excited to have a discussion with you about this issue that we've been talking for many months now. And after Ukraine, it became very clear that this was a prominent issue in global politics and in geopolitics. The clash between autocracy and democracy, between autocrats and freedom. And I believe that this podcast and the discussions that you have with many of the people you invite here is very relevant to understand the state of the world today and the near future. So, Leo, why don't we actually start here? You know, you mentioned the sort of oxymoronic nature of saying release to house arrest. Now, fortunately, I think the vast, vast, vast majority of our listeners have never experienced house arrest. You know, they've never spent time in jail. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about your experience, both in solitary confinement, in military prison, when you were under house arrest, and what led you to decide to do that because it was a bit of a decision for you, right? You turned yourself in voluntarily. And at one point, I remember they appear to have offered you some form of release, which you refused, you rejected, saying that they needed to release other political detainees first. So tell us a little bit more about your own decision making here and what that experience was like. Well, just a brief context. As you said in your intro, in the year 2014, we called for protests against Maduro as a dictator. At that time, uh, surprisingly, not even Venezuelans, not even the political leadership of Venezuela was calling Maduro a dictator, much less the rest of the world. It was kind of democracy in decay, a weak democracy. Others called it a competitive autocracy. And all these adjectives to democracy, not to say the word that it was not longer a democracy and it was a dictatorship. So we went out to the streets. We called Maduro not only a dictator, but also a violent repressor of the Venezuelan human rights. We also called on his relationship with narco-traffic in Venezuela. We also called him for his deep corruption 
that have taken Venezuela to a, an economic and a humanitarian tragedy that was starting at that moment. So that took us to the streets. Tens of thousands of people came out to the streets, calling to the people only through social media. At that time, we didn't have, like we don't have anymore, free press in Venezuela. And a warrant for my arrest came out, and I made the decision to turn myself in in February 18th of 2014. I made that decision thinking along the lines of what is nonviolence about. Nonviolence is about using the alternatives that you have in order to bend power towards making change happen. Using the words of Martin Luther King, nonviolence is about showing the scars of a system in order for the putrefaction of the system moves the public opinion towards change. And that's what I had in mind. So I presented myself voluntarily. I had talked to my wife before, and I knew it was going to be a long period. My wife actually thought that it was going to be shorter than that. And I spent the next four years in a military prison in solitary confinement. During that period, I was sentenced in a bogus trial. I had no possibility to present not even one witness, not even one element of proof to prove my innocence. And I was sentenced to 14 years in prison because of my speech. My trial was a trial of freedom of speech. The allegations of the judge and of the attorney of the regime was that through my speech, I was calling for violent actions to the Venezuelan people. They actually proved that I never actually called for violence, but then they concluded that I was sending subliminal messages to the people that were so strong that people turned themselves violent. And because of that reasoning, I was sentenced to 14 years, most of the time in solitary confinement. I had brief periods of meeting other prisoners, but most of the time by myself. During prison, in my cell, I decided to, and taking the lessons from other political prisoners whose story I've read, to have a routine. I mean, that's a common thread when you read about the experiences of prisoners of conscience in prison, that you need to have a routine. So I made my routine. My routine was very concrete. It was the mind, the soul, and the body. So I would pray every day. I'm a Catholic. I was not a very active Catholic, but I did have a very intense spiritual experience while in prison. I've never prayed with such intensity like I did when I was in prison. I would read or write or draw as much as I could. Then books were taken away from me. Then paper was taken away from me. But I always had the conscience of working the intellect. And then I would exercise. I would exercise every day. So I did this routine with sport and discipline every day. I wouldn't think of the next week or the next month. I never prayed or cherished the date when I was to be released because I knew that that was a trap, that if I fell into asking myself or praying every day for my own release, that would lead to frustration. So I lived day by day, day by day. I at first didn't have a watch. I didn't have a mirror. I didn't have notion of time. So just keeping the notion of time during the day and keeping the notion of the days as they go along throughout the week was a challenge in itself. Then in the year 2017, as you said, I was released to house arrest, which is not the case. The ex-president of Spain, Zapatero, who is a high-level lobbyist of Maduro, he came to my prison and had several conversations with me and other high-ranking members of the dictatorship, and they offered house arrest. And I said I was not interested, that they needed to release 
all the other political prisoners first and that I was not asking for house arrest. Then after eight visits, they told me that it was their decision that they were taking me to house arrest. So they made my house a prison. I have three children. At the time, Manuela was eight, Leo was four, and Federica was about to be born. And they made my house a prison. They surrounded my house with the military and the political police. They wiretapped my entire house. Nobody could come in and out except for my family. So they actually made my house a prison, not only for me, but for my family. In the year 2019, in the context of another cycle of protests, there had been in Venezuela three large cycles of protests, 2014, 2017, and 2019. During the protests of 2019, being in house arrest, I was approached by high-ranking military members and police officers of the regime in order to figure a way to confront the dictator. And we actually had a view of doing a protest of the people with the military and with the police. So in April of 2019, I was released by my own captors who went out to the streets with me and with many others, including President Guaido. We called for protest. That day was a very intense day of protest, tens of thousands of people, but also military and the police. Things didn't go as we expected, so I had to seek refuge at the Spanish embassy, where I stayed for the next year and a half. I was able to escape Venezuela by the end of 2020 and came to Spain, where my family had seek refuge years before because my father and my family was also persecuted by the regime. So since then, I've been in exile, very connected to Venezuela, and now I am doing a fellowship at the Wilson Center working precisely on the issues that this podcast deals with, autocracy versus democracy. That's an absolutely incredible story. I think at some point your memoirs will be quite popular as a thriller. But you mentioned the protests that you helped to organize alongside Juan Guaido. And I remember reading about those day of, and there was this question of like, will this succeed, right? Will Juan Guaido be able to take over as acting president? And as you mentioned, things didn't go according to plan. And of course, the protests in Venezuela and I suppose the failure to dislodge a dictator there is one of many. It's something we've seen in Hong Kong. It's something we've seen in Kazakhstan and Belarus all over the world. And so I wonder if you have a sense of what went wrong. Well, I think that this is an issue that needs to be explored with great detail. I mean, what the cycles of protests, because as you very well point out, there has been a trend over the past years of huge civil protests, freedom protests all over the world. You've mentioned a few, I'll mention others, Zimbabwe, Hong Kong, Nicaragua, Venezuela, even Cuba had some bursts of protests last year. But all of them failed to make political change happen. All of them failed to get rid of the dictatorships. So I think that there are many reasons for this. One of them is that protests by the regimes, by the tyrants are seen as a military strategic challenge to them. And protesters are civilians. Protesters are working within a civilian framework. So while these regimes and the logic works the same from Belarus to Venezuela to Nicaragua to Hong Kong, is crushing the freedom movements, is dividing the freedom movements, is going after the leaders of these movements, is attacking their reputation, their families, and dismantling step by step these freedom movements. I think this is an issue to be explored in great detail with the people that had been in the helm of these different 
freedom movements because I see the mistake of many analysts when they analyze country by country. So they reach through very superficial conclusions, saying, for example, that the protests in Venezuela, they weren't successful because the opposition was divided. That's not true. And that's a simple way out of a very complex issue. And I see similar arguments being used in Nicaragua or in Belarus or in Hong Kong for why the protests weren't successful. I am a believer of freedom protests. I do believe that there needs to be internal opposition to the regimes. I do believe that there needs to be the ignition of a freedom movement that has the will, the capacity, the organization, and the risk-taking attitude to go out to the streets against dictatorships. But there is a lot to learn about how to make those processes more efficient, how to learn from mistakes, not only the ones we made in Venezuela, but elsewhere. Because dictators, they learn from each other. They support each other. And I was really shocked to see the tactics used by Maduro in 2014, 2017, were repeated almost exactly by Nicaraguans, dictator Ortega, or in Cuba, or even in Belarus. There has been very, very similar response of the dictators to the leaders, making them political prisoners, then attacking their morality, their reputation, going after their families, their movements, and creating a sense of repression that gets people demotivated from going again back to the streets. So obviously this is something, as you pointed out, something that's happening all over the place. And obviously while each country has its own context, right? Venezuela has the issues that are specific to it. Nicaragua has challenges that are unique to that country and Hong Kong and so on and so forth. But clearly you believe that there are elements that unite all of these movements, that there are similarities and there are lessons that one movement can learn from the others. I wonder if you can, you know, talk a little bit about what you think those are. Well, I think that this is a key issue. Many times when the public opinion sees what is happening in Nicaragua or in Venezuela or in Belarus or in Hong Kong, and they see the cycle of news of any of these countries, uh, think that these are isolated cases, you know, what is happening in Hong Kong or Belarus or Venezuela. But these are actually expressions, symptoms of the same problem, autocracy. And autocrats work in a very well-articulated network, some with more ties to others. But the reality is that there is an international platform of autocracies that feed each other, that support each other. And that is part of what I believe needs to be an eye-opener for especially the people, the governments, politicians, leaders all, all over the free world, that we are not facing isolated problems in let's say Hong Kong, Venezuela, Nicaragua, but this is a global struggle for freedom. And one of the first lessons, again, is to know that this is a global struggle, that we need to unite because autocrats are united. So we have seen Maduro, for example, hogging Putin two weeks into the invasion of Ukraine, one of the very few leaders of any country that has done that. We have seen that from Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua as well. We have seen Putin sending his high-ranking military officers to Venezuela, even after the Ukrainian invasion started. So these are obvious links, but there are others. And I'll give you some examples that have to do with Venezuela, but I think that they can also be applied to other countries. The relationship in Venezuela and Turkey with the regime and the Turkish regime is a relationship that is nurtured by the extraction, the refining, and the commerce of blood gold. So that's the area in which Turkey has been widely supportive of Maduro. 
But we also see how Iran has been very supportive of the dictatorship of Maduro by giving him support, technical support, financial support, and commercial support in the energy issues, in the oil issues, how to get around the US, the U.S. sanctions that were imposed on Maduro on the oil sector. Without Iran, it would have been impossible to get around these sanctions. But we also see China giving the Maduro regime high levels of credit in order to have oxygens for his expenditures. And we also see the links between Maduro and Belarus and Cuba. So this network really defends each one of the members of autocracies. And I think this points out also to one of the issues that has been on the discussion recently about the use of the UN as it is. Not just the UN Security Council, but also the UN Human Rights Council, which is a huge hypocritical space where you have Russia, you have China, you have Venezuela that have been part of that, or members or steering members at points of this committee. But you also have the same problem in the UN Security Council. So I think understanding that this is a global problem that needs to be faced, not locally in each one of the countries, but globally, it's an important lesson. As we think about how dictators unite, it's not just that they're uniting around the world and creating a network. I mean, they're also uniting in a way that prevents protesters in their neighboring countries from being successful. Right. I mean, as you pointed out, Maduro and Putin were very good friends. But even beyond that, I mean, Putin had been sending advisors and troops in Venezuela supporting Maduro's regime and preventing protesters like you from being successful. Meanwhile, in Belarus, when hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets in protest of Lukashenko, Putin again sent in his army to prevent Lukashenko from being forced out of power. And of course, now that enables Putin to use Belarus as a staging ground for his invasion of Ukraine. So I wonder what it is that you think that the free world can do to try to disrupt this sort of, you know, I suppose you could call it an unholy alliance between those who believe in autocracy. What can we do to either disrupt it, break it up, prevent it from occurring, or alternatively, fight back more effectively? I would call it an axis of autocracy. I think that makes it very clear. And I think it's important to understand that this is not an axis that moves along ideological lines. You have people that represent the Communist Party and you have theocracies. I mean, you, you cannot be more farther from one from another. And in the middle, you have everything. So it's not about ideology. It's about holding on to power. It's about keeping the power to have the capacity to extract the resources and to enrich the, the close circles of the autocrats. And this is an issue that needs to be a frontline attention. This network is not just a political network, which it is. It's not just a military network, which it is. It's not just a network where they learn from each other that they do, but it's particularly a network of kleptocrats. I mean, they have created an ecosystem of an economic sphere that is sealed by corruption, by organized crime, and they protect all of these businesses that they do and they exchange with each other. So the most important thing is to know, again, that this network exists and what things could be done. Well, for example, at the kleptocracy network level, I think that there needs to be an understanding of applying sanctions, not to particular countries only, but to the network itself. And we have seen that very clearly in the case of Venezuela, because of the backdoor 
way out that Maduro was given by Putin and by Iran and by Turkey, he was able to go around the restrictions of the U.S. sanctions. So they created this kleptocratic network of businesses that have impoverished the Venezuelan people. Today, Venezuela is like sub-Saharan, very poor African country, even poorer than Haiti, according to the IMF. But in Caracas and in certain places, you have bubbles that are like Dubai. So you have a a very poor country. 90% of the country is under poverty. 70% of the country of those who are in poverty are in extreme poverty. But then the rest is living with extremely luxurious living standards because they are part of this system of a kleptocracy created by Maduro. So understanding that the power of sanctions needs to be a multilateral that needs to go beyond a single country, I think is one lesson. And I think another one that we can talk with more detail is to support the leadership and the movements from within in order to continue to organize, in order to continue to have the right attitude, the will and the support, psychological, organizational and economic support to continue to build up the capacity to rise up against dictators because it's about the people. I mean, the only real tool that pro-democracy movements have in all of these countries is the people. So this is critical to understand that we need to understand how to support in a more effective way the movements that are promoting freedom and democracy within autocracies. Before we get to that, because I do want to talk about that, you know, you talked about thinking of autocrats as networked. And yet just a few weeks ago, the Biden administration considered lifting sanctions on Venezuela's oil production in order to ease the flow of oil as a result, of course, of Russia's war against Ukraine. How do you react to that proposal? Well, I think that's a proposal that won't solve any of the problems on the energy area, and it will create a lot more problems for the Venezuelan people and for the commitment towards freedom. And I'll start by the first. I mean, there is no way that the production in Venezuela can be lifted to compensate the lack of exports coming from Russia to the liberal democracies. There is no way that that could happen in the short term. And that has been explained by experts with great levels of detail. So the other issue is that if there are alternatives, energy alternatives to the Western world that are democratic, I think those should have a priority and not give the dictators, the autocrats who repress and crush their own people, but also attack liberal democracies abroad, give them more oxygen to continue to crush their people and to attack liberal democracies abroad. And those alternatives, for example, for oil, in the case of the Americas, you have it from Canada. You also have them from the own internal capacity of the United States. And also other countries in the Western Hemisphere could have the capacity to lift their production levels and not lean on the support of Maduro. So I think that turning to Iran and turning to Venezuela to compensate what is happening in Russia is not the best way to go about this problem, because in a way it shows that there is no global view of this problem. Even though the Biden administration and Biden himself has said many times that geopolitics at this time, at this moment of age, is about autocracy versus democracy, and he has repeated that, that decision to lift pressure on Maduro and open possibilities for Iran 
certainly doesn't fall under that logic of autocracy versus democracy being thought as a global issue. You know, it almost reminds me of this game whack-a-mole, right? You hit one dictator, you know, another one pops up. And essentially, by working with one, you're kind of alleviating pressure on that one in order to fight a different one, which, of course, allows autocracy as an ideology to continue to survive globally. So there isn't this kind of view where, no, instead of kind of collaborating with one in order to put more pressure on another, you essentially try to block them all out. But that does raise a question, right? I mean, the U.S. and the free world has worked with dictators around the world. And historically, we've worked with dictators as well. And so yesterday, actually, yesterday being Thursday, we released a newsletter which asked the question, can dictators be reliable allies? How would you answer that question? If the issue is autocracy versus democracy, and there is a clear understanding that autocracies, particularly with their might, China and Russia have a design uh, plan and a determination to attack liberal democracy. And this is no conspiracy theory. I mean, you saw it in the 2016 election. You saw it again in Brexit. You saw it in the Catalonia election. You saw it again in the 2020 elections. You see it all throughout the misinformation atmosphere that the Russians and the Chinese and other autocrats like Maduro in Venezuela, they are constantly attacking liberal democracy, meaning the US, Canada, European nations, and liberal democracies within our hemisphere. So having said that, there needs to be a clear understanding that democracies need to defend themselves. They need to have the capacity. But in order to have the capacity, you need to have the determination And you need to understand that this is actually a problem and that democracy is actually under attack. And you need to defend democracy from this attack that is coming from the autocracies. I know that this is a complex issue and I know that there will need to be priorities. But if you see that the main allies of Putin now are Maduro, it's one of them. I mean, it's one of the very few people in the entire planet that has said, I support the invasion of Russia to Ukraine. And then a week after having said that, you have this confusing opening towards a dialogue with Maduro. I don't think that's the right signaling. I don't think that's the right signaling at the level of principle. I don't think it's the right signaling at the level of energy dilemmas. And and I certainly don't think it's the right way to confront autocracy versus democracy. Basically, what it sounds like is you're suggesting elevating the concept of democracy, of freedom, as a top priority, not just from the lens of kind of morality or human rights, but from the lens of geopolitical strategy, that freedom is itself a geopolitical consideration that we have to prioritize, just like we might prioritize any number of other strategic considerations ranging from energy to geography to, you know, whatever else. Is that a fair representation? Yes, and I believe that. And I don't think that has been the case before. I think that you see it even in the type of aid, the type of cooperation that is given by the U.S. and Europe to places where there are weak democracies or autocracies. Most of that aid goes to what is called civil society, which is important. I'm talking about human rights organizations, civic freedom, civil rights organizations, freedom of speech, anti-corruption organizations. I think all of that is very important. But I think the focus should shift a bit, not to stop doing that support, but 
in addition to support the buildup of the capacities of the people from within these countries to rise up and challenge dictators with the numbers. And with the numbers, you're talking about two things, protests in the streets and capacity to organize and win elections. Those are the two ways in which the numbers expressed by the people can push back dictators. And I think that's where a priority should be focused. So I think policy should start thinking along those lines. But this is not an issue that only concerns governments. I believe it also concerns corporations. And we have seen this debate very clearly after more than 500 corporations and companies from the U.S. and Europe that that, uh, Russia, with great losses to many of them because of a political decision against autocracy. I think that begs the question, what is going to happen not only in Russia, but beyond? I mean, what is going to happen with companies who are working within autocracies elsewhere, who are working in autocracies in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in China? And that will lead not only to a dilemma for governments, but for corporations as well. Because I believe that the consumers, the public opinion, should have the right to know if the product or service that they are buying into has some sort of relationship with slave labor or with dictators who are crushing the human rights of their own people, or if they are from governments who are attacking openly liberal democracies. So I think this discussion should be taken to the level of the corporations and their responsibility. There is this concept of ESG, environment, social, and governance, to determine the type of responsibility that corporations have with their activities. I think a new letter should be added to those three, the F, ESGF for freedom. And that will give a very clear guidance to stakeholders, to investors, and to consumers about the responsibilities of corporations and their ties or they're not being linked to autocracies. As we talk about this, it strikes me that for many of these political leaders, it feels like issues of democracy are almost a sideshow. There's something that they'll talk about a little bit, they'll offer some support for, but they're not going to be the key drivers of political decision making. Right. I mean, even now in the European Union, for example, one of the chief diplomats just came out and said that the EU has now spent since February 24th, the day that Russia invaded Ukraine, they've spent 35 times more on Russian energy and Russian oil and gas than they have on supporting Ukraine. Approximately 35 billion versus 1 billion, which is just unbelievable. I mean, it's mind boggling because, of course, you know, Russia is able to use all of that money to support its war effort and to kill innocent Ukrainians. But let's take a step back and let's imagine what it might look like if freedom and democracy were a key priority. So, you know, the Obama administration somewhere between 2009 and 2011 didn't do very much to support Iran's green movement. And Ben Rhodes, who is a member of the administration, admitted actually at an event that we hosted with Iranian dissident Masi Alinejad that they were wrong for not having done more, but that one of the things that they were worried about was having the protest movement be labeled as agents of the West. Does this logic worry you? In other words, how would you want the free world to prioritize democracy in oppressive countries and support movements like your own, which, I mean, you came close. I mean, obviously it didn't end up working, but you and Juan Guaido and the rest of the Venezuelan opposition did come close at a certain moment to unseating Maduro. So how can the free world help? My first thought uh, of of your comment is we need to get rid of the weight of that view that 
freedom fighters are agents, CIA agents or agents of the West. I mean, that's the attack that we all receive. And if you talk to Massey, who you just mentioned, or to Ivan or even to Gary, who hosts this podcast, or many others, we have all been attacked by our own dictators as agents of the West. And that is not true. And I think we shouldn't have a self-conscious attitude about it. We don't have nothing to hide. And we are fighting against dictators and we need the support from all of the free world. And we need to be open arms about having and receiving all of the support. And we need to do that with our forehead high. I think that that is the result of the backlash of 20th century um, ideas that many of these things were dark and were, you know, underground secretive movements to topple one and put the other one. We're talking about something different. We're talking about the rights of the people. We're talking about the rule of the numbers. We're talking about the people taking the streets by the hundreds of thousands in order to call for elections that they can win with the votes of millions. So we need to get that type of support. And again, I think that there needs to be a deep conversation along the lines of the cooperation that governments give to these societies, because the cooperation that is being given out today mostly goes to issues of development, to issues that have to do either with human rights or certain democratic rights, or issues that have to do with development, access to running water or access to food and medicine. All of that is very important, but it does not address the core of the problem, the cancer of the societies. The tumor is the dictatorship, is the autocracy system that takes away the opportunities to be free and to be prosperous of the people from within these countries. So I think that instead of diluting a lot of the help in many, many projects, a lot of more thought and strategic thinking and support from different disciplines needs to be put into what could make a more effective internal freedom movement in order to create a counterweight to dictators. Because many of these movements have been spontaneous and many of these movements Once they get millions of people out to the streets, they are faced with tactical issues, with strategic issues, with what's the next step. And I believe that there are many lessons learned from Hong Kong, from Belarus, from Venezuela, where we saw hundreds of thousands of people, not one day, not one week, not one month, but several months going and going with hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. And we need to understand how to make those movements more effective. And there are many tactical lessons to be learned along those lines. So is there something that the U.S. or any other country in the free world could have done in Venezuela to have made your movement more successful? Well, I think a lot was done. I think that there was a a lot of support. But I believe that the type of support that Maduro was receiving from his allies was undermined. I truly believe that there was sort of a linear thinking and not the strategic thinking that Maduro was actually going to get more support from his international allies and the support we got. We did get important political and diplomatic support. We even got support for certain activities, but the type of support that Maduro got was military, was intelligence, was a supply of weapons, even soldiers. It was financial, it was to avoid sanctions. So I think it's a mistake. Many people, when they see what's happening in Venezuela and other places, they say, or Maduro is isolated, or Lukashenko is isolated, or Ortega is isolated. Well, they might be isolated from the free world, but they are certainly not isolated from the mighty powers of the axis of autocracy. 
They are not isolated from China, from Russia, from Turkey, from Iran, from Cuba. Uh, so I think this is an important lesson of what happened over the past years. So are you calling for the free world to do more to prevent Maduro from receiving the support or this aid from the autocratic powers? Are you calling for the free world to offer more support to the protest movements? In other words, like what would you want to see the free world do differently? Both. At first, there needs to be pressure put on the autocrats and the tool of the sanctions to confront autocracy. I think it has been revindicated after the invasion of Russia to Ukraine. Before that, we face every day the arguments of people saying, you know, sanctions should be lifted in Venezuela. Sanctions are the problem. No, sanctions are not the problem. The problem, the tragedy of Venezuela, the economic collapse of Venezuela started way before sanctions were imposed. And if there is no uh, scenario where there could be a military intervention or the use of force, sanctions are the tool that's available. So I think sanctions should be applied in a more strategic way and certainly in a multilateral. They need to be applied to the web, to the network of kleptocrats. And I think this could put the necessary pressure on autocrats in order to have possible scenarios for free and fair elections, because that's what we want in the end. That's what we fight for. We fight for a free and fair election. In the year 2015, I went to a hunger strike and I was for 28 days in a hunger strike calling for free and fair elections. At the end, we were successful. The regime put a date to the parliamentary election that was to happen six months after that hunger strike. And it was not just me. I started that when I was in prison, but more than 100 people in other prisons and outside the prisons went to protest in this nonviolent way. And we actually won the election. So what I'm trying to say about this is that there needs to be the necessary pressure from the outside to the network of kleptocracy. And yes, the necessary support to freedom movements, but with the mentality that what needs to be supported is leaders and movements who are hungry for freedom, who are willing to take the risks in the fight for freedom. Because many of the initiatives that are funded by the U.S. and by Europe to human rights organizations and to other development initiatives, again, I believe they are important, but they serve a different purpose. The people who lead these initiatives are not the people who are willing to give face to the dictators, are not willing to go to prison, are not willing to put their lives at risk, are not willing to put their families at risk, are not willing to organize people to have the capacity to do nonviolent protests for days on end. So I think it's an issue of scope of what needs to be supported. Let me push you on this a little bit. I think on the sanctions side, I think that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of support, I think that also makes sense. Basically, what you're saying is rather than giving support to those who, you know, are saying some of the right things, but not really taking the actions to back up those words, that that kind of support is much less effective than supporting those people who might be more controversial, but who are kind of taking the actions and putting themselves at risk in order to oppose the regime. So first, is that a fair characterization of the position? It is, but with a caveat, which is I'm not saying that the support to this development and human rights and civil liberties initiatives need to be stopped. The contrary. I think they are important. I think they need to continue, but they need to be complemented with initiatives that support this type of movements that I'm talking about. And to be specific, the type of support that you're talking about for those movements. So let's again, let's use the case of Venezuela as our example. What does that support look like? Does that mean that they are giving money 
to you know the efforts that you and President Guaido and others tried to put forward? Does it mean offering advice, training? What does it look like? Well, I think all of the above. I think that there needs to be training, uh, tons of training. We did that in 2013 before we called for protests. We've, we spent hours in, in hundreds of meetings all over the country, meeting with people that were being trained with the tools of nonviolent protest. But more than the actual tools, the actual tactics, it was about the collective attitude that was needed. And I remember very well those days that people had the attitude that they were willing to take the risk and that they were willing to go to prison. And that's the main reason why I decided to turn myself in is because I had committed to the people saying that we need to take this to the limit. And if they are going to go after us and take us to prison, I will be the first one to assume that responsibility. And that inspired many people to continue to be on the streets. So I think that, you know, training, uh, it's, it's very important. Also, rethinking about the lessons learned from these processes. I think it would be a very interesting exercise to bring in a table of discussion the people from Belarus, from Zimbabwe, from Hong Kong, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and to see the actual people that were there making the decisions, calling the shots from one day to another, making the tactical decisions, you know, what would be the lessons learned and what other type of support. Of course, economic and financial support is important. And I think on this, there are opportunities that are being opened with the new technologies that allow a very effective transfer of support that is very transparent, very direct, and that has the capacity to jump over the fences of the financial restrictions of autocracies. Because we can have all the support and all the pressure from the outside, but in all of our countries that are facing autocracies, we need to support, we need to scale up, and we need to give the necessary tools to the internal resistance and freedom movements. That is absolutely critical in order to make change happen. So I think that's a pretty powerful call. And, you know, one of the things that struck me, I mean, I'm kind of going back to the very beginning of this conversation. One of the things that struck me is that you quoted Martin Luther King when you were thinking about turning yourself in and then obviously spending all those years in solitary confinement. Do you feel like the example of American democracy, the American civil rights movements, uh, all the struggles that have happened in the U.S. over the years as we sought to improve our democracy, are those things that you and other dissidents are sort of actively thinking about as you fight for your own freedom? For sure. I mean, it's a very relevant example. There are several leaders of nonviolence, Gandhi, Mandela, Luther King being the most relevant. And I read all of their work. I, I read their lives and, and their, their view of what nonviolence is. And in my case, I greatly identify with the spirit and the thinking of Martin Luther King. I actually had a, a tremendous opportunity a couple of weeks ago uh, to go to Atlanta to Andy Young's 90th birthday. He was one of the members of the close team of Martin Luther King. He was with him when he was shot and killed. And I had the opportunity to share with the people from Atlanta that were part of the civil rights movement, that is something very dear to, to Atlanta, the importance of their example or inspiration to fight against a dictator. In the 60s, the fight was not against a dictator, but it was a fight against oppression. However, I need to say something about nonviolence within democracies and nonviolence within autocracies. There are two elements that are the key for nonviolence to be effective within democracies. 
And those two elements are the rule of law and public opinion. So there are restrictions for the way in which nonviolent protests are dealt with in democratic countries. I mean, people cannot be killed. The levels of repression are greatly contained because of the rule of law and because of public opinion. And public opinion has a great level of impact in the decision-making process of whoever is in power. In autocracies, you don't have the rule of law and autocrats don't care about public opinion. I mean, autocrats, most of them are going against 80% of their own population. I know it's the case of Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, I'm sure of Belarus, and even though Putin makes great efforts to sugarcoat his public opinion support, I am sure that most of Russians also would like to see change happen in Russia. So nonviolence within autocracies has the huge challenge and the huge risk that you are going against regimes that are willing to use the force, that are willing to kill people. They actually did. In 2017, Maduro killed over 300 people in the protest, shooting them at the chest, at the head, shooting people that were protesting, other people that were not protesting. So, I mean, we have seen this. And I believe that in order for us to train with a nonviolence and civil resistance method, we need to understand that even though we can take lessons from Martin Luther King, from Gandhi and even man- and other cases, uh, we need to understand that we are facing a bigger challenge when we are facing autocrats. That's a really important point. And I think it's one that a lot of folks who are born and raised in freedom in countries like the US and in Western Europe and so forth kind of lose sight of a little bit, right? Because they're so used to living in a society that has rule of law where public opinion matters and, you know, things like that. They, you know, I, I think there's almost this failure of recognition that it can be so much worse. And that for whatever flaws democracies like the U.S. have, you know, according to Freedom House, at least 60% of the world lives in a country that's far less free. And so what would you say uh, to Americans who believe that the U.S. has, and not just the U.S., but, but kind of the Western world has sort of lost its luster, that it can no longer be a force for good due to the flaws that exist within the system? I think that even though the credibility of the United States globally has taken some important losses, and even though that there are voices within the U.S. and maybe part of the public opinion within the U.S. that has this isolationist understanding of what foreign policy should be like, and you have this in the extreme right and the extreme left in the U.S. political spectrum, I think it's a mistake to think along those lines. Because the only way in which the freedom and the democracy that the U.S. and Europe and and Canada and other countries stand for to be kept is if they are willing to defend it globally. I really fear that the United States loses its leadership in, in the world to promote freedom and democracy. And I hope that everything that has happened over the past months with Afghanistan and now with the invasion of Ukraine leads to some revisionist thinking within U.S. policymakers and public opinion about their own role as individuals, as privileged individuals who live in a free society and that should have also the commitment for that same freedom to be a right for people elsewhere. And if the United States ceases to fight for freedom and if the United States decides to only look inward, the rest of the world will take a big hit in its aspirations for freedom and democracy. 
because we are facing mighty powers. I mean, we are facing mighty powers that have decided to put liberal democracy as their main enemy. And I am not making this up. This was written in a joint statement by Xi Jinping and by Putin on February the 4th, that they made it very clear that they would join efforts in order to crush what they called the color revolutions. And of course, they have made many attempts to attack the stability of liberal democracies in Europe and in the Western Hemisphere. That's a really powerful thought for me. You know, when we saw each other last a few weeks ago at the Venezuelan embassy, which I should note for our listeners is now controlled by the Venezuelan opposition, I was pretty blown away by the fact that side by side with the Venezuelan flag, you had the Ukrainian flag. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what led you to put up the Ukrainian flag on the side of the Venezuelan flag right in the front of the Venezuelan embassy. Well, I know this might be mainstream now for many people, but for us, it's something that we truly feel. The fight for freedom in Ukraine is the fight for freedom in Venezuela and elsewhere. Ukraine is a front line of freedom. Ukraine is an aggressive front line of freedom because it's resisting an invasion. But Venezuela is no different. The tactics of the invasion and of the control of the society were different were internal, but also with external support. But the consequences are the same. Millions of people fleeing our countries, humanitarian tragedy, violence, despair, the collapse of the economy. So the fight for freedom in Ukraine is is a fight for freedom in Venezuela. And I can tell you that even some people close to us in our movement made the decision to go into Ukraine. So I have friends that have decided to cross the border from Poland into Ukraine And now they are working as volunteers in the support of the fight for freedom in Ukraine. And I think that this is a very interesting aspect that maybe you can dedicate a podcast to, to the analysis of, you know, what are this, the, the, the foreign participation in the conflict? You know, on one hand, you have the fighters from Yemen and people coming from Syria to support Putin. But then you have other people, individuals, free individuals that have decided to go because they feel that this fight that is miles and miles away from their homeland is also a fight for the freedom of their own homeland. And I believe that that is a very strong sentiment that I share. uh, And I believe that we should all share because freedom does not have borders. If you are willing to fight for freedom, you need to be willing to fight for freedom in every square inch of the globe. Well, I could not think of a better note to end on than that. So thank you so much, Leopoldo, for joining us here today. And I'd like to thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, which is brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. Our audio engineer is Tommy Heron, and I'm your host, Uriel Epstein. At RDI, we're committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you. Thank you, my friend.